This episode of Long Reads is brought to you by Haymarket Books. One Haymarket title you might enjoy is Eslanda, The Large and Unconventional Life of Mrs. Paul Robeson by Barbara Ransby. It's the first biography of a woman whose remarkable life has been overshadowed by her famous husband. Eslanda Robeson was a journalist and anthropologist, as well as an outspoken activist in the anti-colonial and anti-racist movements. You can find Eslanda at haymarketbooks.org. Readers in the US and the UK will receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. In March 2003, George W. Bush recorded the following message for the people of Iraq as the US military launched a full-scale invasion. At this moment, the regime of Saddam Hussein is being removed from power, and a long era of fear and cruelty is ending. American and coalition forces are now operating inside Baghdad, and we will not stop until Saddam's corrupt gang is gone. The goals of our coalition are clear and limited. We will end a brutal regime whose aggression and weapons of mass destruction make it a unique threat to the world. Coalition forces will help maintain law and order so that Iraqis can live in security. We will respect your great religious traditions whose principles of equality and compassion are essential to Iraq's future. We will help you build a peaceful and representative government that protects the rights of all citizens. And then our military forces will leave. In the new era that is coming to Iraq, Your country will no longer be held captive to the will of a cruel dictator. You will be free, free to build a better life instead of building more palaces for Saddam and his sons, free to pursue economic prosperity without the hardship of economic sanctions, free to travel and free to speak your mind, free to join in the political affairs of Iraq. You deserve better than tyranny and corruption and torture chambers. You deserve to live as free people, and I assure every citizen of Iraq, your nation will soon be free. Eight years later, U.S. forces officially withdrew from Iraq after hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. They left behind a corrupt and authoritarian political system that was soon unable to cope with the rise of ISIS. A protest movement has developed in the past few years to challenge the ruling class in Baghdad but the legacy of the occupation will be haunting Iraq for decades. Our guest today is Dina Khoury. She's an historian of the Middle East, and her books include Iraq in Wartime. This is the first part of a two-part interview. The second part will be aired in a fortnight's time. What was the balance sheet in terms of death, injury and material destruction from the period of direct US occupation in Iraq? The post-2003 invasion occupation in Iraq were devastating in many ways to to Iraq. But I I think uh, that it's important to keep in mind that the U.S. war on Iraq is a long one. I mean, it started really in 1991. And so the impact of the 2003 invasion was made and occupation was made all the worse because 
the embargo that was imposed at the United Nations by the United Nations and supported by the U.S. had already weakened the infrastructure of Iraq, particularly when it comes to came to health and education and sort of uh, eroded the sovereignty of Iraq, uh, economic sovereignty of Iraq, as well as its territorial sovereignties. So the 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 impact of the 2003 invasion and occupation on Iraq uh, actually ended up being more exacerbated by the weaknesses of the Iraqi infrastructure, the health system, the Iraqi infrastructure, and the dispersal of authority in Iraq during the 1990s. Nevertheless, the, the, the invasion and occupation on Iraq was devastating, particularly until I would say 2008, uh, when the insurgency against the occupation took place. I think in terms of loss of life between 2003 and 2011, the official date of the withdrawal of the American troops, the tally on the American side is 4,500 U.S. soldiers. But on the Iraqi side, the reliable statistics of Iraqi lives lost, we have from the New England Journal of Medicine, is about 650,000. Iraqis between 2003 and 2006, when the at the height of the sectarian civil war in Iraq, and then we also know that the U.S. fight against ISIS also led to the deaths of 40,000 Iraqis. These are documented figures. All in all, the rough estimates that we have until 2016, 2017 is about a million Iraqis in terms of loss of life. In addition, there are 5 million Iraqi refugees. Some uh, had fled to Syria and Jordan in the wake of the sectarian civil war, but a large number were internally displaced, moving from areas that had seen a high level of violence to uh, more peaceful areas. We also know that in the wake of ISIS, uh, ISIS, the war on ISIS and ISIS occupation of large swaths of Iraq created also internal refugees uh, to the to the tune of about a million to a million three hundred thousand. And so this is basically the tellies without the uh, violence that's um, enacted by the government against Iraqi protesters and opposition figures where the tally is is not as clear. The other social cost of the war that's frequently not talked about is the stress on family structures. That at the moment, there are 2 million households in Iraq that are led by Iraqi women, and there are countless number of, of orphans. So, And this takes its toll on the ability of Iraqis to rebuild their uh, social lives and also uh, their their uh, you know ability to live well and the other thing that i want to talk about briefly is sort of the material and environmental destruction that came with the occupation so the early months of the occupation led to widespread looting 
particularly of the cultural heritage of Iraq. And you have to think of Iraq as this sort of territory that's a virtual archaeological site because it's one of the most ancient civilizations in the world. So before the invasion, the Pentagon and the State Department had consulted with archaeologists who give them a pretty good picture of the importance of taking care of that military bombing. The bombing and fighting doesn't take place around archaeological and cultural sites. So that the U.S. forces knew that this is something they had to keep in mind. And it seems, though, that the warning went unheeded in the first months of the war, uh, so that directly after the occupation, the Iraqi Museum, National Museum, was was looted, as well as the um, National Library and House of Manuscripts. And the tally is, you know, the, there are about 170,000 artifacts that were taken from the Iraqi Museum. About a million books and manuscripts were looted or burned. And the Ba'ath Party archives and the archives of the various ministries were also taken out of Iraq by the U.S. forces, but also by one particular organization whose leader uh, was a supporter of the invasion of Iraq. And the archaeological sites also suffered. So the U.S. allied forces, for example, built military bases on the ancient ruins of Babylon and Ur, so that in Babylon, for example, Camp Alpha, which was built by this American company called Caleb Brown and Root, um, uh, was built in Babylon, and the helicopter you know, landing, the pad, uh, was partially damaged the theater of the Assyrian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And the site itself was left unguarded, so there was quite a bit of looting that took place by poor Iraqis. And then when ISIS came, of course, the the destruction of the cultural heritage of Iraq in the north also was significant. And the trade in antiquities and smuggling actually built the coffers of, uh, of ISIS itself. So this has led a lot of people to talk about this as a sort of systematic cultural dispossession of Iraq after 2003. And I think the thing that, the last thing I want to sort of mention that's not been uh, highlighted in all of this is the impact on the environment. We're just now beginning to uh, see scientific studies about the residue of military ordinance on the health and people of the environment of Iraq. And you have to keep in mind, Iraq had been in in one kind of war or the other since 1980s. So in the 1980s, when Iraq invaded Iran, there was extensive use of chemical weapons and biological weapons on both sides. And by the 1990s, the 1991 Gulf War, the, the blanket bombing of Iraq left quite a bit of depleted uranium in, in the soil. And the, the United Nations humanitarian agencies have sort of recorded as well the, the impact on the increase in the number of cancer patients as a result of, of this uranium. And this, of course, continues so that because there was need to fight this insurgency and to maintain power in Iraq, um, 
a lot of military hardware was used and discarded and left in Iraq on Iraqi soil. So now there is now you know UN and international world health organization studies that are trying to understand the impact of this ordinance on the Iraqi environment and Iraq Iraqi's health. So you, you need to think of this sort of Iraq as becoming a space in which the United States experimented with weapon systems since the 1990s. And this has left its impact, quite a bit of environmental degradation in Iraq. So, you know, this is sort of the tally from, from the war on Iraq. This 2012 report from Voice of America looks at the long-term health consequences of the U.S. military offensive in Fallujah eight years earlier. Five-year-old Lou Jane is one of hundreds of children in Fallujah who have been born since 2004 with severe birth defects. Her father says Lou Jane suffers from multiple afflictions that Iraqi doctors struggle to treat. The doctor was shocked because it was the first time he saw four defects in one person. A hole in the lower back, a hole in the heart, brain atrophy, and paralysis. A new report published in the Bulletin of Environmental Contamination and Toxology has found that the rate of birth defects in Fallujah jumped from 2% in 2001 to 50% in 2007. The report suggests that the massive amount of firepower used by the U.S. military in the 2004 battle for Fallujah could be responsible for this alarming increase. Dr. Ahmed Kamal Qasim is a human geneticist in Baghdad. He says the increase in birth defects in Fallujah and elsewhere in Iraq stem from multiple factors related to war, including malnutrition, but also pollution from spent munitions. Birth defects genetically divided into two types, chromosomal type and gene type. Chromosomal types increase in a huge number than the gene defect due to the polluted area that I said before. Also, gene defect type increase in some way like in chromosomal defect. But uh, small numbers in special areas, we suspect uh, mostly due to the types of chemicals and weapons especially in muscles. The report found that lead levels in children with birth defects are five times higher than that in other children, and mercury levels are six times higher. Lead and mercury are both neurotoxins, which, the study says, are contained in munitions used by the U.S. military. But officials at the Pentagon deny U.S. military ammunition contains mercury, and they say they are not aware of any official report showing increased birth defects in Fallujah caused by exposure to metals contained in U.S. munitions. But in the case of Abdullah, who suffers from birth defects similar to Lujain's, the cause is clear, says his father. I cannot describe my feelings, but all I can say is that I'd sell my own soul to have my son walk. My message to the American soldiers is this. Would you let this happen to your children? What was the nature of the political system that was put in place under U.S. domination after 2003? The United States came into Iraq with a dual purpose. First of all, to overthrow the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein and establish a democratic system. Uh, At least these were the stated purposes. And second, to establish a free market economy 
unregulated uh, by the government in which uh, companies, foreign and uh, companies as well as companies that are established by the Iraqi diaspora coming in uh, into Iraq and empowered by the occupation, would have the lion's share in developing the oil and infrastructure and rebuilding Iraq after the occupation. And these policies were deeply interrelated in uh, in, uh, objectives, were related partly uh, by this deeply entrenched view of the post-Cold War that liberal democracies only flourish when free markets are established and the state economic sector uh, dismantles. This is what, uh, um, this is how uh, the Soviet, the post-Soviet Union was rebuilt by privatizing all state institutions and, and companies. And so the coalition provisional authority, which was this administrative body that was set up by the United States to govern Iraq in the first year of the occupation, so proceeded to implement a series of measures that meant to eradicate all the remnants of former institutions that ran the country. And this has been called by a number of observers a a process in which it was really state building in reverse. It disbanded the Iraqi army and devolved uh, the security and military functions of the state, uh, particularly after 2000. And five to an amalgam of U.S. military forces, foreign contractors, and private militias allied to political parties uh, that were empowered and brought to power by the United States occupation. And there was an attempt to debatify all state institutions, which meant political and economic disenfranchisement and criminalization of tens of thousands primarily of Sunnis, although state institutions were under the bath, uh, employed both Sunnis and Shi'is and Kurds, but it was um, directed against Sunnis. And this, of course, as we'll find out, fueled the insurgency and a sectarian civil war, particularly in the uh, Arab regions of Iraq, and empowered Shi'i parties who held control of the government. And so to understand sort of this, Iraq has, you have to keep in mind that Iraq was a one-party state until the Americans occupied it. For the majority of Iraqis, the working in state institutions, to be able to work in state institutions, to go to school, to be employed by ministries, to go to universities, to be part of the military and the security. In fact, actually to do anything in in Iraq, one had to belong to the Ba'ath Party. Even if one wasn't an active member or belonged to the upper echelons of the Ba'ath Party. So this really affected large number of the population in Iraq, um, this debathification process. And so in place of the bath, the United States set up an interim government uh, that was, was proposed a constitutional democracy. But the kind of constitutional democracy that the United States envisioned for Iraq 
was a bit different than what we understand uh, about a constitutional democracy, for example, in Western Europe and the United States, because the United States and its Iraqi allies came with an understanding of Iraq that's embedded in this colonial, if you want, understanding of Iraqi society. Iraqis, according to this view, were divided along ethnic, irreconcilable cantons that were ethnic, tribal, and sectarian. The only democratic system that can work in such in such a divided country uh, where, where divisions were entrenched in culture rather than in wrong economic and social uh, lines was to give proportional representation to these communities in a parliamentary system. And for the United States uh, policymakers of the t- at the time, as well as their Iraqi supporters that were overseas, the Ba'ath Party was and the Ba'ath regime was primarily a Sunni-dominated regime, and uh, and the Sunnis were a minority. Therefore, to redress this balance and to make sure all communities had representation, we divide power along communal lines as well as ethnic lines, which included the Kurds. We're now going to hear a clip from a Guardian report on the career of James Steele. Steele was a veteran of the dirty war in El Salvador, who organised sectarian paramilitary groups to repress the uprising against the occupation of Iraq. The US military called this the Salvador Option. US government officials claimed that the presence of American troops was necessary to prevent sectarian conflict between Shia and Sunni Iraqis. In reality, the occupation forces were pouring tanker loads of gasoline on the fire. Peter Mass was a journalist working for the New York Times. He witnessed this policy with his own eyes when he was given unique and rare access to the elite Ministry of Interior's special commandos, the Wolf Brigade. For much of his time in Samara, he was under the supervision of this man, James Steele, General Petraeus' special advisor. Petraeus told me that Steele was his man. Steele had entree to everything. One day, Jim Steele said to me, hey, they just captured a Saudi, jihadi. Would you like to interview him? Peter Mass accepted the invitation to go to the interrogation centre. And we kind of walk into the entrance area, and the first thing that I see is one of the Iraqi guards beating up one of the Iraqi prisoners. And then I'm taken not into the main area, kind of the main hall, um, although out of the corner of my eye I could see there were a lot of prisoners in there with their hands tied behind their backs. I was taken to a side office where the Saudi was brought in, and there was actually blood dripping down the side of a desk in this office. And while this interview was going on, me and the Saudi with Jim Steele also in the the room, there were these terrible screams. There was somebody shouting, Allah, Allah, Allah. But it wasn't, you know, kind of religious ecstasy or something like that. These were were screams of, of pain and terror. And they were so loud and they were so disturbing that Steele left the room to go find out, you know, what was going on because it was breaking up our, our interview. And while he was gone, the screaming stopped. And then he came back into the room and the interview continued. The clear priority at that time in Iraq was to not have this incredibly shaky provisional government defeated by the insurgency. That was priority number one to which 
every other priority, democracy, human rights, etc., was subordinate. So the constitution that was proposed by the Allies and ratified in 2005 uh, by an election set up this confessional system of representation in which parliamentary seats the executive branch and the resources were divided up between political parties or blocs organized around sectarian and ethnic agendas. And this system was called the Muhassasa Ta'ifa system, basically meaning the division of power and resources according to shares between Shi'is, Sunnis, and Kurdish parties. The president of the republic, for example, would be a Kurd. The prime minister, the most political uh, figure, would be a Shi'i. The most powerful political figure would be a Shi'i. And the speaker of the parliament would be a Sunni. It's very similar in its construction to the much older Lebanese system of democratic politics. But this was totally new to Iraq. Uh, There is no history of it, whereas the Lebanese system had its antecedents in the 19th century and was re-inscribed by the European mandate system. And so it's in its crudest iteration, the, the this system really basically furnished the structure, the scaffolding of a political and economic bargain among Iraq's post-invasion political class, basically to divvy up the state's ministries and institutions and provide its, uh, privatize its resources according to ethno-sectarian quota systems. So that, for example, Iraq's main Shia bloc, the Dawa, and its, uh, which was an Iraqi Shia party that was founded in the 1970s and went to exile in Iran and stayed there until the Iraq, the Americans brought them back. So the, the Dawa and its offshoots, and the Sadrists, another Shia bloc that was Iraq-based, and another one, the Islamic Supreme Council of Iraq in its various iteration, continue to be its main beneficiaries. Um, so they're the people who may continue to be in power to the present, with Sunni parties as junior partners in areas um, outside um, the Kurdish regional government's control, as and the Kurds have control in the Kurdish uh, regional uh, territories, regional government, which covers Kurdish territories. And it's important to think that by this time, the, despite the fractious nature of these elites, the, these political parties, and their continuous bargaining among themselves for a greater share of this pie, they constitute a new political class with economic interests. Their parties actually really govern in very similar ways, and they function through a patronage of their followers. And this is how they build their power. They patronize their followers uh, who become their clients, and they are you know, the ones who get uh, government positions, who control certain ministries, who have the resources actually to win supporters by appointing them to ministries or to the military if it's in the 
Ministry of Interior, if they control the Ministry of Interior and Defense, to the health as the uh, ministry, as the Sadris do. So you can see that this system is set up in a way so that patronage and clientism become the main ways of winning supporters. And the funding for this comes basically from the use of resources that are earmarked to build state institutions. But in this case, rather than investment in the economy, these are done basically to buy, for political reasons to buy patronage and uh, clients. So by 2011, when this, the United States left, most state institutions become these arenas of competition between political parties that are highly militarized, the Sadrists and the Dawa Party and the Islamic Council have all their militias that support their power on the ground and recruit young people. And this is a system that means that corruption is built into the system and at the expense of building the country and developing its economy for most Iraqis. This 2018 report from Al Jazeera sums up the evidence of corruption in Iraq after 2003. These warplanes should have cost Iraq less than a million dollars each. Instead, they cost $13 million apiece. Rahim Al-Daraji is a member of the Parliamentary Transparency Commission, which looks at deals done by Iraq's government and any allegations of corruption. He says it's one of many examples of corrupt deal-making. Our financial experts estimate from 2003 until now more than 320 billion U.S. dollars went missing and is untraceable. Most of this money went through corrupt contracts. One example is the Czech warplanes deal. The price tag for each jet is 975,000 U.S. dollars, but the Iraqi government purchased them for 13 million U.S. dollars for each one. The reason for the corruption, he says, are simple. There are no investigative institutions that hold accountable those corrupt. Iraqis have a saying that goes, much unprotected money encourages theft. It's not just the major cases of corruption that concern Iraqis, cronyism, nepotism, permeate all levels of society. And you don't have to go far in Baghdad to hear those stories. Business owners have long complained that the system favours those who pay bribes and have contacts. Corruption is serious in Iraq. One simple example is that imported goods and groceries that enter from Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, UAE and the rest of the region. Our government does not encourage national products or support Iraqi farmers. This is where corruption is apparent. Government officials make money from those contracts with those countries. My wife has graduated from the Teachers Institute seven years ago and she still can't get a government job due to cronyism and nepotism. Political analysts who research corruption cases in Iraq say it's too late to get the stolen money back. No one can eradicate corruption. It runs deep in the Iraqi institutions, but whoever the new prime minister is could make a fresh start that could prevent any more corruption. But what has been done in the past cannot be compensated, eradicated or fought against any more. How was Iraq's political economy, and in particular its oil sector, transformed during the occupation? I think 
the United States went uh, into Iraq with ambitions to impose a friendly and pliant regime. And I think a large part of its its interest in installing a pliant uh, regime was to develop its oil resources. And if you think of Iraq as having one of the largest oil reserves in the world, by one estimate, it's the fifth largest has the fifth largest oil reserves in in the world and produces, I think, is the sixth largest producer of oil in the world. And so the United States went in and its allies were interested in opening up the development of the Iraqi oil to American and European companies, as well as Chinese companies that were interested in um, developing the, the oil industry. And you have to remember that Iraq in the 1990s on the, had uh, had functioned under this sort of debilitating sanctions regime where it could only produce in, uh, oil, enough oil to feed its population uh, uh, and uh, it couldn't sell its own oil. It's, it's, it had to go through an international body, EU, and sanctioned body to sell its own oil. So its oil industry, which included production, uh, marketing, exploration, all of this was put on hold and its oil fields had become, infrastructure had become debilitated. So there was much to be done for the development of the oil sector. And both the Iraqi elite who came in with the occupation and the Americans thought that the only way to do it, this is a perfect opportunity to begin the privatization of the production and marketing of oil. And this as a result meant that there's a major shift in the way that the Iraqis view oil and view development of their economy. And because oil is the main resource for the development of Iraq, constituting 85% uh, of the state revenue, the oil industry, which had been nationalized in 1972, became essential for the state's ability to basically buy resources and develop its economy. And so what happens after the occupation of Iraq is an attempt, systematic attempt by the American government, as well as by the Iraqi government to pass a new oil and gas law that would open it up and privatize its oil industry. A law that was introduced in parliament in 2006 and again 2008 to great opposition from parliamentarians who said that oil is the patrimony of the Iraqi state, has been so since 1972, and it was opposed actually by labor unions, by political parties like the Sadrists who saw this as problematic. So although the cabinet had approved approved an Iraqi oil and energy law, that would have privatized oil production and marketing, it came under attack. So they devised another way of going around this opposition, which said that the Iraq, Iraqi oil remains under, development remains under the Ministry of Oil, uh, under the purview of the Ministry of Oil, 
Iraqi oil remains national resource, but private companies, European, Chinese, and U.S. companies were granted what is known as technical service contracts to develop the oil fields, and which really meant the development of the production of oil fields for certain either share of the profits or for a set fee that would be granted per barrel, the production of oil per barrel. The result of all of this is that the production of oil remained very much stopped being controlled by the Iraqi state. In fact, what we know that by 2009, all new Iraqi oil and gas development was allocated to international oil companies in production sharing agreements from anywhere from 51 to 49%. And more problematic for prospect of national development and employment of Iraqis, these oil companies had the right to manage the oil fields with very little oversight by the Iraqi government. So that whereas these employees in the oil sector had been employees of the Iraqi state or Iraqi oil company, they found themselves now employed by these subcontractors who were foreign oil companies. And Iraqi oil union, oil workers unions objected to this strenuously and tried to stop it. And of course, needless to say, this the privatization of Iraq's energy resources proved very lucrative for the international oil companies, particularly the subcontractors in construction, security, shipping, and transport of oil. And these subcontractors are not only foreign, but also often Iraqi businessmen and political figures who were in partnership, particularly in shipping and marketing with these oil companies. So that even by 2013, the oil production in Iraq hadn't gone up to its pre-2003 levels, in part because of the overcharging, the corruption that came with the new developments of production and drilling contracts with these oil companies and their subcontractors. One of the main forces challenging the privatisation of Iraq's oil industry was the Oil Workers' Union. In 2007, one of the union leaders went on a speaking tour in the US where he was asked a question about the occupation forces. Fala, can you please clarify for us what your view is on the question of uh, U.S. troops in Iraq, do they need to leave immediately? Should there be a timetable? This is a debate in the United States. Quickly, nobody loves uh, to see his country occupied, so he wants them to leave at once. Yeah, he wished they are out of the country yesterday, not today. So that's the sort of larger picture of the transformation of the political economy of oil in Iraq in terms of production sharing agreements. And, and you know, what is applies to the southern oil fields, which produce 80% of oil in Iraq, is a bit different than what happens in the Kurdish regional government, i.e. the oil that's produced in the Kurdish region, which is which has different uh, a different setup, but it's 
when you think about the political economy of oil, it's important also that of the new oil arrangements, it's important to think of who benefits uh, from this beyond, of course, companies that are in oil production agreements. I think in terms of the sort of political elites of Iraq and the disparities in wealth that, new disparities in wealth that emerge from this, we need to think of who benefits among the Iraqi political elite. And what appears to be the case is that there's now a political elite in Iraq, particularly connected with key parties, whether we're talking about Shi'i parties that are currently in power or militias that draw their funds from the control of key sectors of the marketing of oil, particularly port facilities, the transport of oil, and more importantly, the smuggling uh, of oil. We see sort of the entrenchment of a political system that has this resources, this primary resource, which is oil, under its thumb and can maneuver it to enrich itself at the expense of the coffers of the state and at the expense of reinvestments of oil resources in more sustainable economic activities like developments of industries and agriculture. And it's difficult to exaggerate the impact of this misuse of this major national public source of public wealth on working Iraqis who are not part of this political and security and business entrepreneurs that have amassed this huge wealth and influence from this new political economy of oil. The system of power that was set up after the U.S. invasion occupation is dependent on this sort of distribution of wealth that comes through basically selling offices, selling employment of the economic resources of the country to favor through patronage and clientism. And what we have now in Iraq is an official an unemployment rate of Iraqis at 16%, and among the youth, it's 36%. Most of Iraqis work in the informal sector. They have no protection, no job security, no social or health benefits because the state is bankrupt, although there are these political parties that generate quite a bit of wealth through their use of this critical resource. There are no health benefits. They have no legal protections. And they constitute this class of people who come from various social backgrounds, educated university students, educated Iraqis, health professionals, teachers, and so on. This precariat, if you wish, that cuts across Iraqi social groups. And that would, as we we find out, fuel this massive protest against this system. You've touched on this already when talking about the nature of the Iraqi political system, but I wonder, could you expand on this a little more, perhaps? What were the main political forces that were competing for power in Baghdad after the US withdrawal? There are several. By the time the US withdrew from Iraq in in 2011, there were several 
sort of political blocs competing for power. The, the first and most important uh, for the areas of southern and central Iraq are the Shi'i political parties. Of these, the Dawa party and its offshoot, the state of law party of Nurin Maliki, who was prime minister of Iraq between 2006 and 2014, remains quite significant and powerful to the present. The second is the Islamic Supreme Council of Iraq and its new iteration, which is the Hikma party of Ammar al-Hakim, which shares power and has more followers in the southern part of the country and southeastern part of the country. Now, these two parties were parties that were constituted in the 70s, in late 70s and early 80s, and were based in Iran throughout Ba'athist rule, i.e. from 1980 till they come to power in 2003. And both have pro-Iranian agendas, i.e. they are viewed as supporters of Iran, they have good relations with Iran, they maintain good relations with Iran, and they see Iran as their protector, and they see themselves as protectors of Iran's interests, although that's not articulated clearly, and particularly now the the Islamic uh, Supreme Council of the Hikmah party is trying to distance themselves from it. The other strong Shi'i political force are the Sadrists, which are led by a very charismatic figure called Muqtata Sadr. Sadr is a descendant of a venerable family of Shi'i mujtahids who had suffered at the hands of the Ba'ath, but is a nationalist. He continuously mentions that the Sadrists never left Iraq, that they are not allied to Iran. So he sees himself and projects himself as a nationalist, although he's very cautious in his relations with Iran. He is a populist. Uh, His appeal is primarily to the disenfranchised among Shi'i population, with strongholds in Baghdad's popular quarter of Sadr city and in the south. And he had his militia, the Mahdi army, which fought uh, against the American uh, occupation and was instrumental in the sectarian war that um, uh, and the actually cleansing of Baghdad from its, its Sunni population. But he has navigated the politics of Iraq masterfully. He has managed to remain part of any government coalition, but also present himself as an honest alternative and a broker to Shi'i corrupt party, and for particularly saying, you know, at different times, agreeing with the protesters, protesting the corruption of the system all together. And he's extricated himself quite cleverly from the militia, his militia background, and continues to present himself as a populist and a nationalist and as a somebody who protects the poor. Hello and welcome to this exclusive interview. The following clip comes from a 2015 interview with Moqtada al-Sadr that appeared on France Van Quatre. He was asked about the latest phase of US military intervention. First of all, if the American army 
comes back to Iraq, we will consider it as an occupying force and the army will be a target exactly in the same way as the Islamic State organization. It's your experience in 2004, right? As in 2004, we will consider the Americans to be an occupying force and we will fight them and we have more experience on the ground since then. The Americans will discover even more of what they've already been through. There are other secular parties such as the communists and other connected with the Iraqi diaspora figures who had returned. But these always play a quite a minor role and are really junior partners to the large Shia parties. They cannot affect change. Uh, and then there are the Sunni Arabs who in 2011 had become taught quite marginalized, particularly by the prime minister Ma- Maliki, at different points, several political groupings from the Sunni population had developed to run for parliament, i.e. they they said, okay, we'll be part of the system and we'll be junior partners of the system. But these parties were discredited by the bulk of Sunni population, particularly in what is known as the Sunni triangle, because they couldn't deliver and could not uh, mitigate the sort of ascendance of the Shia political parties and also deliver services and and positions and resources to the devastated Sunni population, particularly in Sunni-dominated areas. So they couldn't deliver, and they couldn't persuade the Shi'is to invest in Sunni areas. So... This is what fueled the um, Qaeda insurgency uh, in Sunni areas in 2007-2008. And this led to this rise of tribal leaders under uh, the U.S. called the the Sunni awakening to fight against Al-Qaeda. By 2011-2002, Al-Qaeda had been defeated. Its remnants had moved elsewhere, but Anbar and Fallujah remained quite neglected. And third, there were the Kurdish parties that dominated the politics of the Kurdish regional government, particularly the Barzanis based in Erbil, who were heads of the Kurdish Democratic Party, and Talabani's Popular Union of Kurdistan based in Sulaymaniyah. So these parties controlled the government in the Kurdish areas and had their own militias and the federal army had no presence in that area. So this is the layout of the land by 2011. Many thanks to Dina Curry for that account of Iraq's history since the occupation. This was the first part of her interview. She'll be discussing the rise of ISIS and the protest movement of the past few years in our next episode.